Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Thank you for joining us today in our continued series through the book of Jonah. Many of you have commented about how helpful this series is and this book study is, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. So many times through this study, I felt like the messages were that God had for us were timely, and today I believe uh, it's another timely message, timely in the way of how uh, what our country and what our, our world has uh, witnessed this week uh, through various Events, and I think today's message will be timely uh, in uh, application to those events. We've seen Jonah go from being a prophet before the Lord to being a runaway prophet, to being a, a castaway, to being in the belly of a, a fish, to being vomited up, and now receiving, receiving grace, as we talked about last, last Sunday morning. What we find today is we find, we find Jonah engaging finally in the mission which God has called him. In Jonah's running, he is, he's learned something. He learned it painfully. And I don't know how many times you and I learn painful lessons, but Jonah has painfully learned this fact that God is pursuing him so that he can liberate him from himself. Let me say that to you. God is pursuing you so that he can liberate you from you. Now the modern Christian and even the modern reader of the scripture might have a problem with that thought. And it's a tough pill to swallow in a culture that is uh, does so much to build self-esteem or uh, we tell people and teenagers and children and young people to follow their heart. When we tell everyone to believe in yourself and anything is possible, to then hear a pastor like me say, uh, no, you actually need to be liberated from yourself. You need to be freed from yourself. That's what Jonah has experienced and that's what we need. I'm going to tell you though that it is failing for us to find ourselves confident or hoping that in us is something that is special or something that is telling us that we can do anything or everything or that we need to follow our heart because that is, my friends, a, it's a failing hope. What Jonah comes to after he comes to the end of himself is his heart is gripped by radical and relentless grace. And now Jonah is able to live the life that God has meant him to live. Now that is only available in the gospel. That is only available by God's grace. And so that's why a pastor like me stands here and says, don't follow your heart. Throw yourself at the mercy and grace of God and let God take you to the life that he has for you. I want to ask you, what if your fullest, most incredible life is not lived by your grand pursuits, but in the pure enjoyment of the gracious favor of God on your life through Jesus? The most incredible life, the pure enjoyment that you're seeking and I'm seeking is ultimately found in the favor of God as shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah has experienced that favor, and now he is engaging in the mission that God has called him to. God has relentlessly pursued Jonah. So Jonah now relentlessly lives a part of God's mission. Jonah's story is a story of God's pursuit of a rebellious prophet. And so now Jonah wants to throw himself into God's story, a story of pursuing wicked 
evil, depraved Ninevites. That is the heart that is compelled by grace. God has saved me from running to Tarshish and pursuing my idea of life, so now I am free to follow him to Nineveh. And so my story comes into God's story. What we find with Jonah, though, here in chapter 3 is really, it's really troubling, actually, as we're going to see in a moment. At the surface, it looks like Jonah is all in. At the surface, it looks like Jonah has committed his life to be a passionate follower of God, but that is not necessarily the case. But I have to ask our church this morning, are we, are we ready to obediently follow the one who obediently laid down his life for us? Are we ready to give the gospel to our friend or our neighbor? Are we ready to serve the unfortunate and those that are wrongly affected? Are we ready to fight to get the gospel to a world that is broken by evil? And this is the calling of all who have received of the grace and the favor of God through Christ. Are we ready? I ask you this morning, in light of all that you've seen and heard this week, are you ready to bring your story into God's story? As we'll see today, God's grace doesn't mean that we get an easier task. In many cases, the task of living on mission with Christ And bringing our story into His story is a dying to self and a dying to our human dreams and is aligning our purposes to God's. But when we align our story to God's, here's what it means. It means that we get the promise of God's presence and His power. Now I want to jump into the passage today. And I want you to see what happens when Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see in verse number 3 of chapter 3, and we're going to work our way through the text today. And so notice these words in Jonah 3 and verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now we stopped there last week. But now we see, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. And so in Jonah's day, Nineveh was a major city. It's great in size. It's great in importance. It's great in prestige, population, and power. It was such a great size that the author here tells us that it's a three-day journey to get through the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh started by a mighty man, a man named Nimrod. He's the great-grandson of Noah. We find a little bit of an introduction to Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. We find that he's a, a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord in Genesis chapter 10 verse 9. We find that in verse number 11 of Genesis chapter 10 that he built in Nineveh and that we find in verse number 12 of Genesis 10 that this city, this Nineveh was a great city. It's founded by a mighty man and it's a, a great city. Modern day Nineveh. Modern day Nineveh would be in the vicinity of Mosul, Iraq's second largest city, which is about 250 miles up the Tigris River from Baghdad. We've seen Mosul in history and in the recent current events with what's going on in Iraq. We've seen uh, the damages that were done to historical artifacts from the Assyrian Empire from the city of Nineveh there in Mosul. But imagine for a moment as Jonah walks up to the city, he sees Possibly large buildings, homes, people, power. He surely recalls what he knows about these Ninevites. No other people in Scripture have acted in such a depraved evil like these Assyrians have acted. Jonah doesn't walk up to Nineveh as a Jew who's been under the oppression of these Assyrians. He doesn't walk up impressed with the size of the city. He surely does recall all the evil that has taken place so that this city could be built. 
the Assyrian Empire had some ruthless leaders. Some of the most ruthless that the ancient world has ever seen. Leading the way was a king, a difficult name to say, but Ashurn Asurpal II. I did my best on that, forgive me. A century before Jonah's time, he wrote these words. He said, I caused great slaughter. He wrote in describing a military campaign, he said, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took their warriors, I imprisoned and impaled them on stakes before their cities. He reported a battle where 3,000 were killed and many others taken prisoner. And he said this about that. He said, many of the captives that I burned, I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, their ears and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burned their young men and women to death. This is a depraved, evil city. It's a wicked empire. It's, a wick, it's been run by wicked kings. When we talk about evil, there's not been really an evil that we, could, that we could say has trumped even this Assyrian empire and all that they did to wreak havoc in the world during those days. I shared with you when we started this series that the Assyrians would cut heads off of their captives and they would put them on a stake and they would make the family of those that have been decapitated walk around with their loved one's head on a pole on a stick this is the this is the Nineveh that Jonah enters how bad is our world how grievous is our world well how grievous is Nineveh but I want you to notice here what Jonah does when he gets into Nineveh, his message is simple. I put it in a modern way for you where you might have heard something like this. It's a turn and burn message. It's turn and burn, turn or burn. As he enters into the city, he does exactly what he was sent to do. From the center of the city, notice what Jonah's message is in verse number four of chapter three. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. So he gets into the city a whole day. And he cried and said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. Eight words. Eight words. Jonah knew the importance, and maybe you do too, of the number 40 in the Bible. Jonah knows at this point, what's been revealed possibly is that God, for 40 days, sends a deluge of a flood of judgment to wipe out the wickedness of human life from the face of the earth. We find that in Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 12. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Jonah knew of the 40 years at the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel. He knew that they wandered because of their prideful faithlessness to God. Israel's crime was so repulsive that, I, that Psalm 95.10 tells us, 40 years long I was grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have known, excuse me, they have not known my ways. Jonah knew the importance of the number 40. In the book of, the book of Numbers, the 40 stripes with the whip was the limit on God-ordained penalty. 40 stripes. See, this was a sign to Jonah. The message of 40 days was a sign that God meant business. God meant business. This number 40 is a signal. It signals a, a time of testing, or maybe you would say it's a time of probation. God was giving these Ninevites 40 days to repent and turn to Him. The idea here is that for however long Jonah preached, he only cried out these eight words. We have no other understanding of what Jonah said. We don't know if he added to that message or if this is what he said. For however many days he preached, he kept preaching these words. I think Charles Spurgeon's words here are helpful. He said, speaking of Jonah, he entered the city. Perhaps he stood aghast for a moment at the multitude of its population at its richness and splendor. But again, 
He lilted up his sharp, shrill voice. Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. On he went, and the crowd increased around him as he passed through each street. But they heard nothing but the solemn monotony. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet again, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This was the drumbeat message from the prophet to these Assyrians. But then we, we find next in our text, we find that when Jonah preached these eight words, the third thing is Nineveh believed God. Nineveh believed God. A popular Dutch artist it gives us a picture of Jonah's message in Nineveh. And obviously this is art and not an exact depicting, but it gives us an idea. There, as you see on your screen, the people are gathered around. They're, they're listening. They're concerned. They're responsive. None of them are angry. They're not mad or yelling or berating the prophet. Nothing that Jonah might have thought would happen actually did happen. We have no response in the text even that there, there's anger and malice. No, the Bible says in Noah, excuse me, in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Now, I think this is important for us. It's important for us to understand. The people believed God, not Jonah. As they hear Jonah, they hear God's voice, as it should be with all of God's messengers and all of those that proclaim God's words. But Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. Luke chapter 11, verse 30. The Lord Jesus says for us, Jonas was assigned unto the Ninevites. He's a sign of judgment. And the people in Nineveh got the message. They got the message from an eight-word sermon. And for some reason, Jonah's message spread like wildfire. Maybe it was the fact that it was so brief and to the point. What happens? The people proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth, a, a, a humbling of themselves from the greatest to the least. We should notice, we should notice in Jonah's doom and gloom message, the one thing that is missing is the gospel way out. What I mean here is that Jonah doesn't give them any hope. He doesn't even tell them what to do. He simply says to them, simply says to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no other explanation. There's no, nothing telling them what they should do so they could stop this from happening. Jonah declares the judgment. And I'm going to recommend to you why I think that is. From the rest of chapter 4, what we'll see in the next couple of weeks, I believe it's fair to say that Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to get saved. He doesn't want them saved from the judgment of God. Yes, Jonah might have been compliant to go to Nineveh. He was compliant in preaching the message. And in so doing, Jonah is doing this, I would propose, to avoid more correction and more judgment from God. You see, the truth about Jonah is, Jonah had a change of direction, but no change of heart. We're going to revisit that in a little while. A change of direction, but no change of heart. He doesn't want these people to have forgiveness. He wants them to die. They're in his mind, in Jonah's mind, they're undeserving of forgiveness. He was perfectly happy, Jonah was, to receive mercy, but he was not perfectly happy sharing it with those that he didn't think deserved mercy. But what is intriguing, and maybe one of the most intriguing parts of this whole story is that in spite of Jonah, they repented. In spite of Jonah, they repented. In fact, they repented to the point where the word made it all the way to the king. Notice in verse number 6, the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne 
and laid off, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. You know, this is a, an Old Testament picture of humble repentance. And this is one of the most amazing statements in the story because the Jewish reader would have been stunned, stunned to read this. Nobody would ever expect that the wicked, evil, depraved, godless, pagan Assyrian king would repent and humble himself before anybody, even God. My friends, don't miss this quote. The same God who sends massive storms and massive fish to rescue a massive rebel is able to change the hardest of hearts by His massive power. That's great news. Because the God who spoke things into existence is able to change the hardest of hearts by His power. We, we, you and me, we need to get back to believing and praying for this in our church. We need to get back to believing in this and praying for this in our city and in our country that our God is able. He's able. Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye that are pessimistic. Oh, ye that are cynical. Oh, ye that are sarcastic. Let's get back to believing that God is able and praying like He is. Great amazement, we find this king. find this king responding, and not only does he take his robe off, and now he looks exactly like the other people in Nineveh. He's, he's with sackcloth and sitting in ashes. But notice what he does next in verse number 7. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by, that, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. This simply shows us these people didn't really understand God and they didn't know how to repent. They didn't know how to repent and so what they do is they just say, We're going to call everybody and everything to repentance. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're not going to let our animals eat. We're not going to let our animals drink. And so here you have hungry and thirsty people, hungry and thirsty animals, and they're crying out to the Lord, turning from their evil way. They're putting the violence away that is in their hands. Really, we have this incredible revival. An incredible revival. And Jonah had nothing to do with it except declaring eight words that were not really sufficient to this revival. God worked in spite of Jonah. I think for us, we need to understand and remember as Christians who want to think biblically that the king does not diminish or dismiss the sinfulness of the people. He recognizes the evil and violence that is in their hand, and he does not try to avoid it. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to soften it. He, com- he calls them to forsake their evil way, to turn from their evil way, to put out the violence from their hands. But I want you to see what he does next. He asks a question, verse number 9. Again, it shows us these Assyrians really don't know much about God. So the fourth thing I want you to see in this text is, who can tell? Who can tell? So what do you mean? Look at verse 9. Who can tell? This is the king. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his, turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell? This profound statement that In spite of this king's lack of understanding about God, he is spot on when it comes to this universal fact. When God has fierce anger turned toward created beings, they must believe and expect 
to perish. Who can turn away the wrath of God towards sin? Who? Will God show mercy? Who can tell? Who can tell if God will turn and repent or change his mind, so to speak, is what the the king is saying. They simply aren't sure, so they fasted, they repented, and they waited for God. Now, let me just let me just kind of bring this down to the bottom shelf for a moment. And this is where this couldn't have been more timely. But I don't always find wicked Assyrians in the Old Testament to be a pattern for New Testament Christians. But you know what takes place here is we have some people that are very serious about change. They're very serious about it. They're passionate about it. I mean, if you knew that you had 40 days to turn or God was going to destroy you, you'd have a real problem. And you'd be serious about it too. And when you're serious about God's deliverance, you'll go to great lengths. You'll go to great lengths. Now, I want you to hear these words. Currently, in this climate that we live, the state of our society, the, the pain in our nation, what we've experienced, we have watched news and seen articles and videos this week that have done incredible damage to our our understanding about this world, but it's also been very revealing to us. And I want to recommend to you that Christians need to plead for God's mercy. We need to plead for His fierce anger to be turned from us. We need to pray that the blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse Wicked and evil sinners. And if you're hearing me today and you're legitimately serious about wanting to see change, I want to invite you this week as you pray for mercy. I want to invite you this week to remember to share Jesus with someone this week. I want to encourage you that when you want to post about something great, post about it. But you better also pray about it. Your post might have the the ability to move the heart of a fallible person, but scriptural prayer calls us to see the heart of the God of heaven moved by praying people. And I think in our day, the more and more human tools we have and the more vehicles we have, Christians are neglecting two main vehicles, and that is that of prayer and that of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you to follow even the Assyrian model here. Follow the model of the Ninevites, if nothing else. Pray, work, and wait. Pray, work, and wait. You say, pray what? Well, pray expecting. Pray expecting that God is going to work. Who can tell if he's going to work? We know that God is working. We know that God wants to work. Christians have hope in that. So pray expecting. Work. Work with the teaching and the preaching of the powerful gospel. Because information simply informs. But the gospel transforms. And we have a society and a culture and a nation and people that need to experience transformation. And only the blood of Jesus Christ is able to bring that. Only Christ. If you believe the Bible, that is the gospel truth. Fight for change. Share the gospel. And then, wait in faith. Trusting that this is God's work. Not ours. This is God's work. And God will honor our prayer. And God will honor our obedience in sharing the gospel. He will honor it. So wait in faith. Who can tell? 
Who can tell if the Lord's going to turn and repent? Who can tell if God's going to turn His anger from us? Who can tell? God knows. And God's called us to pray. And God has called us to share the message of Jesus, the transformational message of Christ. And God has called us to wait. To wait on Him. To wait on Him. Whatever your first response to, whatever your first response is to evil will dictate what you believe is your hope to fix the evil. And so lament, weep, cry, have a righteous and holy anger, but my friends, pray, pray, and pray, and share Christ, and share Christ, and share Christ, and wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And I want you to see what happened. I want you to see what happened. You think the world is bad today? I want you to see what happened in wicked Nineveh. Look at verse 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. That's the fifth, that's the fifth part of the story. And he did it not. And he did not. I want you to take hope in that he did it not. He saw their works. There was genuine works that evidence that they had turned from their evil way. The passage tells us that God repented of the evil. And the idea here is not that God changed his mind about the evil. God doesn't change his mind. Nor does he change his mind about how evil should be handled. God does not change his mind, my friends. Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and he shall not make it good? He did it not. Eric Redmond tells us, whatever God has now, whatever character God has now, He's had it from eternity past. And he will have it forever. Hear me. Don't miss this. Whatever power God has, he's had that power from eternity past and he's never lost any of it. He will always have it. He's not increasing in power. Whatever knowledge he has, God has already had that knowledge his entire existence. And he will have it through all of eternity. So God never changes. And if he could change, you and I wouldn't want to serve him. If God could change, He could change His faithfulness. He could change His mercy. He could change His goodness. He could change even His truthfulness if God could change. But God cannot change. God doesn't change His mind. He doesn't change His mind. He feels exactly about evil as He always has. So what happened in Nineveh? Well, inerrant with God's message of doom and gloom, of turn or burn is this. If you change your ways, if you repent and turn to me and believe in me, I will spare you. See, unbeknownst to Jonah, unbeknownst to Jonah, God's message was getting across. The message of judgment called them to repentance. God's repenting is Him deciding to give mercy instead of judgment because of our repentance. But God had already chosen to give mercy to the repentance. So the, the change of mind is just God saying, listen, you responded the way that I've called you to respond, and so therefore, I'm not changing my mind about the evil. I'm simply now going to give you mercy. God never has acted as if the sin and the wickedness never happened. Sin's debt, as we have discussed, must be paid. These Ninevites aren't getting away from God free. They're not 
simply receiving salvation uh, as, as if their sins didn't matter. No, if they received salvation, it was because God forbeared their sin until Christ paid for it at the cross. So if Nineveh is saved, they're saved by God's mercy. They're saved by God's mercy. So God changed his mind? No, God had decided that if you don't turn, you get judgment. If you turn, you get mercy. That was fixed. So Jonah in Nineveh, preaching the gospel, or preaching judgment, I should say, gives us some truths that we can apply today. As has been the case, four of them. The first one. God does great work through defeated people. God does great work through defeated people. In fact, he does great work through a man who's not 100% submitted to him. He does great work through a defeated person. Jonah is an example to us of God's work through this kind of defeated person. Maybe you're listening or watching this morning and you think, God would never use me. Can I just say kindly, that is very self-centered. Your eyes are fixed on you. And your eyes are fixed on your failures. And your eyes are fixed on where you've fallen short. But the truth is, God can and will use you. And God can and will use your story to bring others through to salvation through his story on the cross. And so the person hearing me today that's feeling defeated and feeling like a failure and feeling useless before God, can I just tell you, God does great work through defeated people. So, yield to his work and to his word. Yield to his work and his word. Number two, the gospel is good news to defeated people. I have a way that I like to say it, but maybe it's offensive because in the, the tone in which some might hear this, but please hear me very carefully. The God, excuse me, the gospel is the good news for all who have lost for, for all who have lost to find hope in the one who has won. Let me say that again. The gospel is the good news for all who have lost to find hope in the one who has won. Let me say it succinctly. The gospel is not for winners. It's for losers. It's for losers. Now that is condescending a, a, a phrase, a, a words that are often used in condescending ways, but to the Christian who understands their Bible, for the Christian who is solidly rooted in Scripture, they understand what it means to be a sinner and a loser before the eyes of God. It does not mean that they have no value. It means that they've lost. They've fallen short. And the gospel is not for those who think that they've arrived. It's for those who know they haven't. This is the Bible truth. The gospel's for all sinners, all that are wicked, all that are depraved, all that are lost. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have one hope is scandalous people, and that is the powerful gospel that shows us the relentless mercy and grace of Jesus. Number three, true repentance. True repentance is the answer to all social and relational ills. I want to stop here. I want to ask you to listen very closely to me. 
We have two different types of repentance in the Bible. The first one is attrition. And we don't mean attrition like things that are dying off or going away. But attrition is a Bible picture of repentance that means heartfelt sorrow for wrongdoing. But it's a selfishly motivated response. It's, it's trying to push away potential punishment. It would be the idea of, I'm only sorry because I was caught. Or I'm only sorry because I don't want God's judgment. And we, we find a whole lot of that kind of repentance in our day. It's anemic. It's, it's, not, it's not scriptural repentance. It's not a repentance that brings about lasting change. And so in a society like ours, as we witness, we witness pure evil in front of us, we, we do witness absolute injustice we witness murder. We witness sickness. We see the news this week of, 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 of people dying all over the world from a pandemic. And we, we see jobless uh, numbers. And we see uh, just incredible amounts of heartbreak and sorrow. And, and really we find ourselves wondering, how do we express repentance about this? True repentance is not attrition, but contrition. This is the idea of having a contrite heart. This entails heartfelt sorrow for offending God and others. It involves not just turning away from disobedience, but also turning toward obedience. It's an external change motivated by an internal change. And this is only possible by the gospel because contrition always turns us towards God. Always. It always turns us towards God. Jonah is an example to us of attrition, selfish sorrow. The gospel empowers us to contrition. And it produces a God-centered sorrow for sin. Can I just tell you what the Christian the Christian experiences as they come face to face with the gospel? They come face to face with the gospel and they're reminded. They're reminded of the weight of sin. And hear me, they might they might speak against the sin or the evil of another but they do so understanding first that contrition starts in their heart. In their heart. I can't force contrition from, you, from your heart, but God can compel contrition in my heart and produce a genuine repentance, hear me, that turns me toward God, not away from Him. In our society is begging for some kind of answer. Begging for some kind of answer. I don't stand here today as an expert. I stand here today as a pastor. A pastor who has wept with many of his people this week, who has prayed for many of his people this week, who are hurting. They're hurting. They're not sure what to make of news out of Minneapolis. We've got people in our church this week that have found out that they've lost loved ones to COVID-19. We just don't know what to do with any of this. And as we weep, as we mourn, as we express anger even, let us be mindful of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. But I might unsettle you here with this fourth point. Forgive me. I might unsettle you. You might, if you're going to be easily offended, you might want to shut this part off. But number four, Nineveh reminds us that Christ came to save the worst. There was nobody in this world in which Jonah enters Nineveh. There's not a, there's not a civilization 
that has expressed depravity like what we've seen with the Assyrians. They are the worst of the worst. I'm going to be rather direct. Be rather direct. Many this week have expressed, they've expressed how much they hate, and by the way, absolutely God stands in total opposition of racism, of injustice, of evil. But can I just tell you what the gospel says? The gospel says that Christ came to die. He came to die for the worst. For the worst. He came to die for the Ninevites in our world who would inflict evil on people. You see, the gospel is available to everyone. And as Christians, as Christians, as we stand opposed to evil, injustice, wickedness, I want to remind you that the gospel of Jesus is for the person who you think does not deserve it. Let us not be Jonah. Let us not be Jonah. See, we're, we're in a day where people are longing for hope. And we can be like Jonah. Listen very carefully. We can be like Jonah. And we can constantly declare the negative. We can constantly, and there's a place for it, decry the evil and speak up against true injustice. We can do that. But let's make sure, unlike Jonah, that we give the good news. That we give the good news. Because what happens, I heard a man say this week, what happens when all we do is decry injustice is it breeds in our heart a bitterness and a hard-heartedness towards those that bring injustice. The Christian who is solid on the word understands that even the bringers of injustice deserve the gospel. They deserve the gospel. They deserve to hear of Christ because only Christ can save them from their evil. I speak today as a heavy-hearted pastor. My heart is heavy, it's grieved. I'm concerned for very many in our church, very many, truthfully, in this city. But I do so understanding that there is hope. And Christ is that hope. The gospel for the worst of people. If you think for any amount of time that God has placed a different level on everybody's sin and you're not as bad as this person, you don't line up with the biblical explanation of sin. Can I just tell you? God hates racism. God hates abortion. God hates lying. God hates those who don't speak truthfully to his word. See, with a righteous fury, God stands against sin. But he comes in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue. There's hope. Pray. Work the gospel and wait. If you're hearing me this morning, I simply want to say to you that the gospel is available to all because the best of people, the only good one of us, died for all the bad ones. Christians who think biblically aren't out there trying to make people better. 
they know that the gospel is the only vehicle that makes people new. Say, Pastor, you have a short-sighted view on the problems of this world. I would argue to you that if you call God's truth of the gospel short-sighted, then I understand. I'll always line up with the gospel. I'll stand with you, and I'll stand and fight the wickedness and the evil of this world. But I'll always do so holding forth the word and saying to anybody and to everybody who recognizes that they're a sinner, recognizes that if you don't turn from that sin, that if you don't turn like Nineveh is going to be overthrown, you're going to face the judgment of God. But if you'll come to Christ in faith, God will save you. He'll save you. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. And there is salvation. You say the day is dark, Pastor. I praise the Lord that in the darkness, the light of the gospel shines brightest. Don't be deterred. Don't be distracted. Preach Jesus. Pray and wait. If you're listening today and you say, Pastor Moore, I don't have any understanding of this gospel of which you speak. Let me just summarize it very simply. The gospel is, starts with bad news. It starts with the news that all, all of us are sinners. All of us. And that God was going to judge our sin by eternal punishment in hell. Eternal separation from the God that created us. But God did not create hell for us. So God sends Jesus. This was his plan. He sends Christ into the world who lives sinlessly, unlike us, who dies in our place, to give us, as we believe on him, the hope of eternal life in heaven and a new life today. That's the gospel. Would you come to Christ in faith? Say, I'd like to talk to you about that. Perfect. We'd love to send you a gift. If you would have any questions about the gospel, would you email me? Email me directly at pastor at ravenswoodbaptist.org. Pastor at ravenswoodbaptist.org. We'd like to send you a gift, and I'd personally like to share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior. Church, this is not the time to wait. Excuse me, it's not the time to stop. It is the time to wait and work and pray. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.